You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. The second lecture on campus by Marius Laurinavichus, who is at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Uh, I'm just introducing, uh, I'll say an introduction to the person who will introduce Mr. Laurinavichus. Uh, I, I, my name is Gunther Schmidt, I'm at the Baltic Studies Program, which is housed in Scandinavian Studies, but we certainly are, are, have one foot in the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. Uh, so so I, I hope to see some of you in the Baltic history and Baltic politics or Baltic cultures classes, if I have not already met you. Uh, University of Washington is one of two universities on this continent to teach Lithuanian language. Pretty much 50% of all Lithuanian specialists in the country, on the continent, come from here. So that's something to think about, to stand out from the crowd when you are, when you are taking foreign languages, to add Lithuanian as another language that you're studying for sure. And thank goodness you can learn Lithuanian. We've been teaching it since 1994. Uh, for the past three years now, we have been working with Vilnius University and have a jointly funded lectureship, one of Vilnius's, uh, Vilnius University's best Lithuanian language instructor, instructors uh, teaches here now, teaching Lithuanian language, culture, and other topics. So I'm going to introduce Ausra Valanchauskiene, who will then introduce our speaker tonight. <laughs> My mission today is not to teach you Lithuanian language, <laughs> but I'm very happy to introduce uh, Marius Lorinavichus, our guest speaker and also fellow countryman from Lithuania. Now he is working in, in Washington, D.C. And to save our time, I, I will read about him uh, important information. So, Lorinavichus is a Baltic American Freedom Foundation Security Research Scholar, currently in residence at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Lornachus is considered to be one of the leading experts on Russia and Lithuania, and he has received several awards for his contributions to Lithuanian foreign policy. At CEPA, he is contributing to the Baltic Sea Security Initiative and Information War Program. Before assuming his fellowship, he was a senior analyst for the Vilnius-based Eastern European Studies Center, as well as the foreign editor and deputy editor-in-chief for the biggest Lithuanian daily that was Lipas. Lorinavichus holds master's degree from the Institute of International Relations and Political Science of Vilnius in Lithuania. And before Lorinavichus talk, um, of course I would like to thank you thank Alison Center for contributing to this event and the Department of Scandinavian Studies and people from Lithuanian community helping us today. And, uh, Marius Lornarchi's talk before was called Russia and the World A View from Lithuania, but uh, we see, you, you can see that the title is changed a bit. So Marius Lornarchi's will tell why he has changed. And uh, we had also one lecture at 1 today at 1 p.m. And we had a very interesting discussion after that. So I hope we will have also a very interesting discussion today after his talk. And so please welcome. Enjoying, uh, join me in welcoming uh, Marius Lorenarius. 
Thank you, Osha. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you for hosting me here. Uh, it's a real privilege to speak to you to present our Lithuanian view on Russia, uh, because I think that for people uh, in the region, I mean, for people uh, in Lithuania, in Latvia, in Poland, in Estonia, uh, maybe some other countries of Eastern Europe, there were uh, very little surprises about Russia. We were talking about the same things we're talking today long, long ago. At that time, several years ago, five years, seven years ago, we were called paranoid people. Uh, it's, really, it's really true. Uh, we were called paranoid people. And uh, today, uh, the history proved that we were right. Uh, but we're not very happy about that, uh, because it's a sad truth. Uh, we're not very happy that our assessment of the threat uh, was right, because uh, the next step, the next assessment of the threat is that Russia poses an uh, existential threat, not only to the uh, Baltic states or Ukraine or some other countries in the region, but Russia poses an existential threat to the West as a whole. And uh, I wouldn't be very happy if this assessment of the threat will prove uh, true uh, by the history again. Uh, that's why, and this is the reason why I changed a bit uh, a title of today's presentation, because to my mind, the most important uh, thing uh, to speak about today, speaking about Russia, is why we always caught by surprise by Russia. It's con we are constantly caught by surprise by Russia. To my mind, uh, there is little, uh, there is no reason to be caught by surprise by Russia because uh, all these uh, actions and uh, aggressiveness of Russia could have been anticipated, and it should have been anticipated. So to start with, uh, I will uh, just remind you of some uh, historical facts uh, which led uh, to the current situation we have with Russia and this antagonism of Russia and the West. <clears throat> First of all, bombing apartments uh, of apartment houses in Russia and war in Chechnya. Um, this was the first time when the bell ring, uh, rang about, uh, about the Russian actions. Uh, well, maybe at that time uh, nobody believed that, but uh, now we can say that there is quite a lot of proof that bombings of apartment houses in Russia were orchestrated by FSB uh, just uh, for Putin to come to, to power. And when you see that uh, we deal with a regime uh, which uh, came to power bombing uh, their own citizens, uh, sleeping citizens, uh, there is uh, no red line for such a regime. But okay, um, many people still in the West believe that uh, this is just a conspiracy theory 
many people in the West uh, proved that. Uh, I can mention David Sata, a very uh, well-known uh, journalist and uh, analyst of Russia who wrote a book about that, but, but there are many other people, but still many people in the West believe that it's a conspiracy theory that, that uh, FSB was, uh, FSB orchestrated all these apartment bombings. But we can uh, talk about the war in Chechnya, about the human rights uh, violations, about the killings and all the other things. What has happened in Chechnya since then, even after the war, when, uh, under the rule of Kadyrov. So it was the uh, first time the uh, bell rang in, in, in Russia. The second one, massive human rights violations from a year 2000 and on. Uh, the first one, uh, political assassinations in Russia, uh, which uh, started from the year of 2003. Uh, there were many, many political assassinations in Russia since then, but we uh, somehow uh, just uh, put our blind eye on, on, the, uh, on these killings and other uh, crimes of, of Putin's regime. Uh, political assassinations abroad. Uh, most of you uh, would think that uh, the first political and maybe the only political assassination abroad was a uh, uh, killing of uh, Litvinenko in London in 2006. But it's not true. The first uh, political assassination abroad uh, was carried out by uh, Russian uh, people of uh, Russian uh, military intelligence, GIU, in Qatar in uh, 2004. Uh, former uh, Chechnya uh, President Yandarbiev uh, was killed by car bombing in, in Qatar this year. And these people were caught uh, with all the evidence in Qatar. They were sentenced to uh, long years in prison. But still, uh, at that time, uh, Russia uh, just uh, uh, took, a, uh, took a hostage uh, a member of uh, Qatar uh, Olympic team, was taken a hostage by Russia in, in Moscow, one of the Moscow airports. That was uh, the time when they started negotiations, and these people were <coughs> brought back to uh, to, to, to Moscow as a hero. So that was the first time uh, of the political assassinations abroad, and we again put a blind eye on these uh, crimes of Putin regime. Now we're talking uh, a lot about the hybrid warfare against uh, the West, against uh, Ukraine, uh, but the first uh, case of the hybrid war with massive, uh, massive cyber attack included was against Estonia in 2007. Again, what has happened? Nothing. Nobody was uh, very much interested uh, and very much scared about that. War in Georgia, 2008. Uh, uh, right after this war, uh, in 2009, uh, a reset policy uh, has started uh, United States, uh, reset policy with Russia. Uh, we thought that uh, it is just a, some kind of misunderstanding. It's, it's not so serious. We should uh, negotiate with Russia and everything will be okay. 
Uh, then the, uh, the war in Ukraine in 2014. That was a time when uh, the Western world uh, finally was awakened. But still, even talking about the situation today, uh, we're talking, especially in Europe, we're talking about the possibility that sanctions against Russia uh, will be abolished uh, next summer or, or, or a month, uh, several months after that. So uh, are we really serious about, about the situation? I don't think so. Uh, the war in Syria, uh, the war in Syria uh, should have been anticipated uh, at least since uh, Russia participated and we applauded so much the Russian participation in uh, this uh, in negotiations on the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Uh, since then, we should uh, have been anticipated uh, Russian actions in Syria. Uh, and finally, a hybrid warfare against Germany, 2016. Uh, this is a famous story about uh, false rape of the girl in, in, in Germany by refugees, uh, by which Russia uh, managed to destabilize uh, political life uh, in Germany quite uh, in a um, big way. So uh, now we have this uh, short history of Russian crimes and, and uh, aggressiveness against uh, our Western world. And this is a history of our blind eye, blind eye on, on Putin's regime. So what's the reason of that? Isn't our naivete which enables Putin to catch us by surprise? Uh, I'm, uh, uh, well, I'm really critical of Obama administration, but I don't want to go into uh, internal politics of uh, United States uh, and take any side. So that's the reason I took these two quotes uh, of people who are on the same page uh, on many, many positions. It's, uh, President George W. Bush, and former candidate for president and senator John McCain. So uh, this is very famous uh, quotation of uh, President George Bush when he first met uh, Putin in 2001. Uh, he looked into Putin's uh, soul and saw something. Uh, but the thing is uh, that Senator McCain he said these words much uh, later, but still uh, he was right when he looked into Mr. Putin's side and saw three things. It's K, K G, and B. <laughs> it's, it's really the case, uh, because it's not about Putin, it's about a regime which is based on KGB. The main questions to be addressed. So what is Putin's regime? What is the difference in mentality between us and them? What, is, uh, what are ultimate goals of this regime? And what means uh, have they chosen to achieve their goals? Um, most of us think uh, that uh, Putin's regime is something 
which is created by Putin, and that's why it's called Putin's regime. Most of, most of us think that uh, it's Putin who brought all these people by KGB origin uh, and background to power in Russia. But I should apologize for those uh, <coughs> listening to me this morning. I, I will repeat that. It's not true. Uh, I can refer to very, very well-known Russian uh, researcher and, and scholar uh, uh, Olga Krishtanovskaya, uh, who has been researching uh, uh, Putin's regime and KGB uh, for decades. Uh, she's really one of the best, uh, and she uh, has uh, very uh, good figures to illustrate that it's, it's not true. So the thing is that mm, when uh, it's according Olga Krishtanovskaya and uh, the data she uh, collected, collected during these decades of researching Putin's regime, uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, during uh, the period of uh, uh, President, uh, during the period of, of Gorbachev, in power, in the highest ranking positions uh, in power in the uh, Soviet Union, there were only 3% of people by KGB uh, and other intelligence agencies uh, or military or police people in power in, uh, in, in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union at that time, 3%. At the early years of uh, Yeltsin, we thought that Yeltsin is uh, still think that Yeltsin is, uh, was a Democrat, Democrat, first uh, democratically elected president of Russia. But at the very early years of uh, Yeltsin, there were already, uh, in, it was 1993, there were already 30% of people by KGB background, in KGB and other intelligence agencies background in power in Russia, 30%. At the late years of uh, Yeltsin, uh, 1998, it was already 50% of people by KGB background in the highest position in power in Russia. So when we have a situation that 50% uh, of uh, in highest, position, highest positions in, in, in power in such country like, like Russia, there are 50% of people with KGB and other intelligence agency background, we can say that uh, this country is already controlled by KGB. So that was the case, and Putin was just a result of this control of KGB in Russia. It was not Putin who brought these people to power in Russia. Uh, and, well, I can talk for, for, for hours uh, about that, but, but the thing is that it, it was a kind of, well, uh, from the very beginning uh, of the, uh, when Soviet Union collapsed, they took uh, all the resources in Russia, they took uh, the KGB money, they, they took uh, Communist Party money, they invested this money in, in the West. So it was not something like accidental. Uh, even we have documents who prove, and these are real documents from the Soviet time, who prove, uh, we, which prove uh, that uh, 
it was a plan to uh, take all this communist money and uh, distribute to uh, the loyal people uh, from KGB and, and Communist Party. So it, it wasn't like an accidental thing. Uh, the second thing, what is the difference in mentality between us and them? And the third, uh, what are ultimate goals of this regime and what uh, that means, uh, what means they have chosen to achieve these goals? I will talk about this right now. Um, so I already started to talk about Putin's regime. Is it actually Putin's regime? My answer is not Putin's regime because uh, Putin is just an accidental leader uh, in Russia uh, or of such a regime. Um, I've already told this morning, I will repeat that, uh, that in a year of 1999, when Putin really came to power, uh, there were two other people uh, who were a real candidates to replace Yeltsin, to be successors of Yeltsin. And these, these guys are, were Yevgeny Primakov and uh, Mrs. Pasha. So both of them are from KGB. And uh, most of the analysts uh, who really uh, deeply analyze the situation in Russia, they agree that uh, noth nothing could have changed if uh, it was Primakov or Stepash. It would be the same. Uh, so it's not a year of 2000 when this regime was born was right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. What's, what is Putin's role uh, within this regime? Uh, most of us think in terms like Putin is the Tsar of Russia, the other Tsar of Russia. And again, I would argue it's not true. Uh, Putin is uh, just, uh, I would call it uh, just uh, godfather in mafia who takes uh, the final decisions, but he can't uh, make it by himself. Um, he's always looking into the balance of power, and he can't uh, make uh, his own decisions without consulting all these uh, groups in power in Russia. So it's really not uh, of Russia, it's much more like a godfather of the mafia. And then talking, when I'm talking about mafia, most of uh, to most of you, it might sound strange or again a kind of conspiracy theory. But I will talk about this a bit later and will explain it. Uh, and I think will prove it that it's really a mafia type. country or uh, mafia style uh, government. Uh, is it really just a kleptocracy and the only goal of which is to stay in power and then enrich itself at the expense of its own people? Uh, not long ago, uh, we had a discussion here in the United States with one of the best experts of Russia. Uh, I, I really uh, respect uh, his deep analysis and expertise on Russia, Margaret. And uh, he said, he just said that, uh, you know, um, well, 
The concept that Russia is just a kleptocracy is somehow wrong. It's something uh, he called it uh, kleptocracy plus. Uh, my understanding and my argument would be that it's plus uh, this something plus kleptocracy. This something is KGB. So it's uh, these people, yes, uh, Putin's regime is based on uh, corruption, bribery, kleptocracy. Uh, it's a tool, uh, I would say that kleptocracy is a kind of toolkit uh, for Putin's regime to uh, rule in Russia and to control the country. But it's not uh, about the ultimate goal. And it's not about the vision they have. Uh, they have a clear vision, uh, and it's not just about staying in power and enriching itself. They are waging a, a war against the West, and they are doing a, this. Uh, they were doing this during Cold War, and they, they are doing this uh, again today. And this is a really important quotation from Putin himself. Uh, at that time, it was said publicly, it's not something invented. Uh, this is a quotation of Putin. Uh, it was right after he uh, was elected uh, a president of Russia in 2000, when uh, the meeting of FSB took place, uh, some official meeting of FSB uh, took place in Moscow. And he just said that a group of FSB colleagues dispatched to work undercover in, in development has successfully completed its first mission. At that time, uh, it sounded like uh, something like a joke. And most of us, uh, even those who listened to these wor uh, words, uh, were thinking in terms like it, it was a joke, but it really wasn't. Difference in mentality. We're dealing with second or third generation of KGB people. That is very important to know and to remember. Uh, generally speaking, I would say that uh, looking into the biographies of these people uh, and analyzing uh, Putin's regime Looking into the biographies of these people is an essential thing. So we're dealing with second or third generation of KGB people. And this is why their mentality is exactly what it is, and why it's very difficult to change this mentality. Uh, Putin's father, just I, I just will speak about Putin himself because it is the best example, but we can look into the biographies of uh, many, many other people in power now. But Putin's father was uh, from NKVD, which was predecessor of KGB. Putin's grandfather was uh, chef for Stalin, uh, Lenin, and others, but we all know that all these chefs for such people like Stalin, Putin, uh, Lenin, and others were from NKVD as well. Uh, so Putin himself is a third generation KGB guy. Uh, 
Is it true that politics there, uh, uh, that in politics there are no permanent trends and enemies, only permanent movements? This famous, uh, famous quotation of uh, Churchill, as far as, as far as I remember, is well known and uh, uh, broadly spread in the West. Uh, but again, I would argue that it's not true about Russia. Uh, it might be they have uh, no permanent friends or no friend at all. But the thing is that they have permanent uh, enemies. And the single biggest permanent enemy of Russia, of Putin's regime, is not uh, countries like Ukraine or, or, or others. It's United States. That was the case during the Cold War. That is the case now. <coughs> Other times of zero-sum game uh, over, and uh, everybody is looking for win-win situation. It's our post-modern world which really thinks in uh, these categories and terms of win-win situation. We think that all the conflicts should be solved. Uh, should be solved by this win-win uh, situations. But it's uh, exactly the opposite when we speak about Russia. They still believe in this zero-sum game, and they still believe that if they win, somebody lose, and if somebody lose, they win. That is one of the main things to be remembered about Putin's regime. Uh, the end of history, famous concept of Fukuyama just after uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which uh, said that, uh, well, it's our liberal democracy is the ultimate uh, model of uh, the human civilization and that uh, this model has won and it's the end of the history. But Putin's regime and people in Moscow, Putin, uh, people in Kremlin don't believe that. They believe in ideas of Karl von Clausewitz, well-known uh, German military strategist and uh, well-known geopolitical uh, well, thinker uh, who was thinking in, in geopolitical terms. Uh, and these are uh, two quotations from Karl von Clausewitz. The war is a mere continuation of politics by other means. This is how they think in Russia right now. And the aggressor is always peace-loving. He, uh, he would prefer to take over uh, our country unopposed. That's exactly how they think in Russia nowadays. Uh, that, and that's why when Putin is offering some uh, peace-loving uh, uh, solution or offering, to, uh, offering any support for the West, I've already mentioned Iran, uh, negotiations with Iran. So uh, we should think uh, in terms that he's preparing or Putin's regime is preparing something, uh, the next step for next aggression against us. Uh, and the final one, soft power versus military power. 
we think in the West, we think that, well, in our day's world, all our goals uh, can be achieved by the soft power. Uh, and we think that even some kind of aggression can be carried out by the soft power. It's not the case uh, of Russia. They think that uh, military power and soft power is just two parts of the same uh, concept, and they make no division between soft power and military power. They just think in terms that they are waging a war against us. But isn't it really about the war? When I'm speaking about the war, I, I was many, many times I was called a woman. Uh, but the thing is, to my mind, uh, the thing is that when, uh, when your opponent or adversary uh, thinks and acts like being at war with you, uh, you are at war with your adversary. It's simple like that. So it's my understanding of that. But don't, don't take it from me. Take it from people who know uh, the situation uh, from the first Gantt experience because they were inside the regime and they were waging this war against us. So the first quotation is from Oleg Kalugin, uh, the most well-known uh, defector of KGB to the West. Uh, I've met him not long ago, uh, several weeks ago. We had a very good discussion, but this is uh, Quotation from Kim. I think he was a low, highest level defector too. No, he's not. Uh, the, high, the highest level defector from the well, if we take if we take Russia, it's true. But uh, the highest uh, ranking defector from the whole uh, communist camp was was in fact was uh, the chief of Romania uh, foreign intelligence general Ion Pachev. I will quote him. <laughs> so. Uh, Kalugin was talking about the war. Soviet Union was waging against the United States, again, against America, not against some other country, but against America. But the even more important quote is from Sergei Tretyakov. Because why it's so important? Because he was talking about the situation not only after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he was talking about the situation. Uh, when Putin was already in power. So, and he described the situation, again, in terms of war Russia or Putin's regime is waging against the West. And he warned American people that you are naive to think that something has changed. But still, in our postmodern world, uh, to think and especially to speak about a war, it's something like uh, political uncorrectness. Uh, because our societies, our people, they don't want to be uh, to, to think in terms of war. Uh, we don't even want to think about a war uh, because we think that. A war is something which uh, should be left for uh, history. Our world is different. No war. 
Uh, that's why I brought uh, these, uh, these three quotations to you. The first one is from one of the leaders of the Soviet uh, uh, Union, creators of the Soviet Union, uh, Lev, uh, Lev Trotsky, uh, who just said that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. That's the exact situation of our days with Putin's regime. We can deny that we are at war with Putin's regime. But if they are at war with us, we are at war with them. Uh, well, most of the people would say, what are you talking about? There is no war. It's something just, OK, this regime is corrupt, uh, aggressive, and uh, somehow, uh, well, unpleasant to us. But it's not about the war, because we don't see any tanks running. We don't see any fighters uh, in the sky. So it's not about the war. But it's, it was well known uh, thousands of years ago, because the second quotation is from a very famous uh, Chinese military strategist uh, who lived about thousand years ago, uh, that uh, the best war is such when you don't even need to fight. So, uh, and the third quotation is the, from the official document, from the official uh, military doctrine of Russian Federation. What you see in this quotation, it's exact, exactly the same, uh, in, not in so many words, maybe in some different words, but exactly the same, what uh, was said by Sun Tzu. Uh, the next thing uh, I would like to, to talk about is uh, that we are using a, a, a term of war. We're, we're, one of the most trendy discussions in the West is the information warfare uh, of Russia in the West. Uh, we use a term of hybrid war, we use other terms, but when Generally speaking, when somebody says that we are at war with Russia, somehow we are keen to deny that. But let's talk about the information warfare. Is it somehow a new phenomenon or just a well-forgotten one? So it's again a document. It's not something that what Oleg Kalugin just uh, talked about, just uh, in general terms. So in 1981, KGB reported that they had funded or supported 70 books, 66 features, and documentary films, more than 100 television stations, 4,865 articles in magazines and newspapers, 300 conferences or exhibitions, and 150,000 lectures around the world was a year of 1981. Look at the situation today. Everything is all more the same. While I'm talking about this uh, information warfare, uh, it's just because case General Jon Pachepa, who is the highest ranking defector from the Soviet bloc to the West during the Cold War. He wrote a book, 
this information about his own experience, first gang experience, being a guy who uh, met uh, on a regular basis with Andropov and all the other people and worked with them hand in hand. So this is a book about his own experience and why, uh, when he was asked why uh, he uh, just chosen the title of the book, this information, the explanation was that uh, he believes and he knows from his first-hand experience that disinformation was uh, one of the most successful weapons of KGB. Other people like Kalugin and others say, uh, add to that, that it was uh, the most part of the activity of uh, KGB. Uh, they say that uh, KGB is not, and it's true, KGB was not a kind of intelligent agency we know and speak uh, about in the West. Because what we know about intelligent agencies, it's about collecting intelligence information. It was not true uh, uh, at the KGB. One of the, uh, the, the biggest part of the activity, the biggest uh, resources they devoted for uh, was disinformation, active measures, and activity like that. So that's why these disinformation campaigns are so important even now. What is the ultimate goal of Putin's regime? Uh, the ultimate goal of Putin's regime, and they uh, say it publicly from time to time, you can hear it from Putin himself, that uh, the ultimate goal is the new international order. But what order do they have in mind? They're talking about New Yalta, they're talking about uh, Helsinki plus 40, or New Helsinki Agreement. So generally speaking, they are talking about uh, destroying <coughs> all the uh, world order we created after the Second World War. They want to go back to this situation of New Yalta, let's say. But uh, it's not only that. When we uh, read uh, the publications of well-known well Russian analysts, uh, their papers, uh, we can see, uh, we can clearly see that uh, the best international order uh, they think about is a concept of Europe. So they want to bring us back into 19th century. Concept of Europe was concept, uh, it's also uh, called uh, UN international uh, system. It's a kind of uh, balance of power. So they want us back, uh, bring back to, the, to these times of 19th century. Uh, how can they do that? Uh, so they want and they need to achieve this goal of concept of, of Europe or balance of power, in, at least in Europe. They need to undermine and ultimately destroy European Union and main. There is no other way to achieve this goal. That's why the ultimate goal of Putin's regime is to destroy and uh, use this word not undermining of European Union and NATO, I would use this word destroying European Union, 
uh, and NATO just because they use this, this particular word. It's not about undermining, it's about destroying. And the final, final goal of, uh, ultimate goal of uh, Putin's regime is destroying US, United States. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, I just presented to you these two quotes from two different uh, defectors from KGB, which uh, they were talking about the same goal, a war against the United States. So the final uh, ultimate goal of Russia is destroying the United States. Uh, how they are trying to achieve that? Uh, I would argue that uh, Putin's regime, and that was also true about the Soviet Union, but especially uh, when we're talking about Putin's regime, they have no strategy. But they have a vision. They really know what they can, achieve, they want to achieve, and how they can to do that. Um, the thing is that this regime is an opportunistic power which takes opportunities we give them. So it's almost impossible to predict what step will be next, or if Narva next, if Baltic states next, if uh, I don't know. Arctic nest or some other uh, steps will be taken by Russia. Uh, if they will find uh, that uh, they have an opportunity to achieve uh, something, very little step uh, towards achieving the ultimate goal of destroying European Union, NATO, and United States, somewhere in the world they will do that. Uh, and they are very good at finding our weakest spots. Weakest spots of our societies, weakest spots of our um, political structure. That's why they are always taking opportunities we provide them. They are very flexible because of different ideas and power struggle inside the regime. Uh, the regime is not mono in, in Putin's regime is not monolithic. I've already uh, told you my understanding that it's not uh, about Putin being a Tsar of Russia. Uh, we have, uh, and I, I see at least 10 uh, most powerful clans in Kremlin itself. So, and these clans have different ideas and even different uh, ideologies. So that's why they are very flexible just adopting uh, one strategy after the other, so-called strategy after the other. Uh, and Putin's regime makes no dif major difference uh, between military and non-military means in order to achieve their goals. That means that it's not necessarily that they will uh, wage a real war, this conventional war, with, uh, against some other country before taking some other steps. And what are these other steps? Non-military means of all Putin regime wages against the West. The first is international crime. And that is uh, the uh, uh, thing I promised you to, to, to explain uh, better about why I'm talking about mafia. 
Don't take it from me. Take it from a Spanish prosecutor, Jose Grinda, uh, who has been investigated the crimes of Russian mafia in Spain for decades. And now he made a case to the court, uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and the case is in the court already. So this is a findings of a Spanish prosecutor, uh, not uh, an ideas of any analysts, uh, journalists, uh, political uh, scientists. This is the findings which are based on facts which are already presented to the Spanish court. And the second quotation is even more important than the first one. Uh, and I, I just uh, made it uh, for purpose uh, just in red that Russian security services control criminal groups and use them to do things the government cannot effectively do. One mafia leader in Spain was actually a Russian intelligence officer tasked with selling weapons to the Kurds to destabilize Turkey. If they do that, and this is based on facts, it's not something, uh, some speculation, it's based on facts. If they do that in Turkey, you can be sure they are doing that all over the world. The second thing we should think about, drug trafficking. And starting from the Cold War, and it's again, it's documented, the first quotation, uh, it's documented, it, it's not, uh, and it's a real quotation from Nikita Khrushchev, uh, then a Soviet leader, said in 1963 that deception and drugs are our first two strategic echelons in the war with the capitalists. Uh, well, some of you would think uh, that it was long, long ago and something has changed. But let's listen to Yuri Schwetz, the other uh, defector to the West, ex-KGB officer who was witnessing at the inquiry into death of Alexander Litvinenko. And he just said that President Vladimir Putin and his longtime ally Viktor Ivanov, and who is currently head of Russian Arctic Agency, that's a very uh, good paradox, but uh, they both have been impl implicated in helping run uh, a drug smuggling and money laundering uh, ring in St. Petersburg in 1990. So it's not only about uh, some people in Moscow, some Russian mafia, it's about Putin and Viktor Ivanov, who is one of the closest uh, allies of, of Putin, that they have been implicated in helping Russian drug smuggling. But closer to the United States, you, all of you know the problem, which uh, is uh, which makes uh, Mexico drug cartels to United States. Uh, I just just chosen one quotation from leading Mexico daily. 
that uh, they are involved in, in this Mexican drug cartels. Uh, but uh, we can remember other examples. Let's say, I don't know how, how, how many of you remember, but it was a very famous case when uh, Russian, again, Russian mafia uh, uh, sold a submarine to a Colombian uh, drug cartel. And that was, again, the same case. Uh, in this so-called Russian mafia, there were many people with KGB background. And if you listen to Putin himself, he uh, constantly says that there is no such thing like a former KGB agent. They are still working with the regime. These people still are working with the regime. Terrorism, the other major problem in the West. Uh, well, again, three quotations, but uh, to start with, uh, I should say that uh, it's already documented in Metrochian archives and other documents we acquired after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, that uh, modern Islamic terrorism was created by KGB. That was the reality of the Cold War. Uh, KGB, again, it support, uh, KGB supported not, not only uh, Muslim terrorism, such organizations like Palestinian Liberation Organization, Hamas, and all the others. They uh, supported such organizations like uh, Red Army faction in uh, Germany, uh, Red Brigades in Germany, Red Army faction in Italy, and many, many others. Uh, such people like uh, Karl uh, Schakal uh, was uh, uh, a KGB agent as well. So uh, it's well documented already that uh, during the Cold War, uh, KGB supported all kinds of terrorists all uh, uh, around the world. And this is, uh, again, if we can call a witness, Gen General Jon uh, Pacepa, uh, we see that he, uh, he can uh, support the idea that uh, this was a case during the Cold War. Again, maybe it was just only during the Cold War. Let's listen to Alexander Litvinenko, who was killed by Putin's regime. And now, now we know about uh, the case from the inquiry in London. He said that can read the quotation itself, but uh, he said uh, literally the same thing. Nothing has changed. They are supporting terrorism uh, right now. But you, you might not uh, be willing to uh, listen to people like the defectors from KGB. So let's listen to your own uh, well-known journalist, Michael Weiss, who is one of the best, I would say, one of the best uh, experts on Russia here in the United States, I mean, in, in Germany. So he, he talks about the same thing. Russia is supporting ISIS. I wrote an article about the support of uh, ISIS by Russian security services a year and a half ago, maybe. Uh, but I wouldn't like to, to, to speak from uh, my own perspective. Uh, I've made a lot of arguments why we can 
make such a conclusion on the article and if uh, somebody of you is interested it's very easy to uh, find it on the internet it's it's called uh, are the traces of uh, kgb giu and fsb uh, leading to the isis something like that so uh, but let's let's think about these things uh, and let's think why russia is claiming that they are bomb uh, they are fighting isis but they are bombing just the opponents of assad in syria the fourth mean uh, of the west uh, the, the war they are waging against the west by other means Corruption and support of anti-liberal forces. Uh, the first quotation is from David Kramer, one of the well-known analysts uh, here in the United States. The biggest export of Russia is not uh, is not oil or gas; it's corruption. It's actually actually it's it's, it's one of the best quotations uh, I like very much. Uh, it's really so. They, uh, it's not only Putin's regime is based on corruption. It's uh, about their concept, and it's about the concept not uh, to their own country and to their own regime. They are trying to corrupt us, and it's not just trying uh, uh, just uh, a thing when they are trying to cor uh, corrupt ourselves uh, just because they want to enrich themselves. It's about the concept, uh, the political concept, because this regime, if they want to survive in our world, uh, they want, to, uh, they need to corrupt us to be successful in the Western world. Support for anti-European parties in, uh, in Europe. Uh, well, it's so. Uh, this case is so famous now. I don't uh, think I uh, need to elaborate on that. Uh, they are supporting these anti-European parties having uh, one goal to undermine and ultimately destroy the uh, European Union. Uh, but we think that uh, this is only the case of Europe. Uh, so I would argue that it's not only the case of Europe. Uh, it's documented, again, it's documented, it's not my analysis, it's documented that uh, Russian uh, Russia is uh, supporting anti-fracking movements in US. It's documented. I can speak about other things, what they are doing in US, but when it's not documented, it's it's uh, more difficult to speak about that. This thing is documented. So they are trying to uh, and thinking in terms of. Uh, Shell uh, oil and shell gas and shale oil uh, made a revolution in energy, which Russia don't want to happen. This is not accidental thing that they are uh, supporting anti-fracking movement in the US. Uh, the, four, the fourth uh, thing, which might sound very strange to you, but I really uh, taken it and, and offered uh, this quotation to you uh, just because um, I want to warn you that uh, some 
I can recall some five years ago when first reports about uh, this uh, Putin's support for anti-European parties in Europe just appeared. Most of the people laughed at that. This, in the same way, we would be willing to laugh at, at this uh, that Putin is uh, supporting some uh, success, uh, secession of uh, Texas or Puerto Rico. But uh, five years has passed, and now we see that most of the analysts and even politic, uh, polit po uh, politicians in Europe agree that this Putin's support for anti-European parties is Europe, in Europe uh, makes a, an existential threat to European Union. So it's not about uh, when they are taking such steps, uh, they are not, it's not about any joke. They're really serious about that. Uh, I, I, I don't want to say that they have a chance to achieve uh, these uh, goals uh, like Texas and Puerto Rico secede from the United States. But if they are taking such steps, we should be cautious. Conclusions. Putin's regime poses existential threat not only to the U United States, but to the West as a well. whole. The threat should be treated seriously despite comparative weakness of Russia. Uh, it's not, I want to repeat myself, it's not, when we're talking about Russia, it's not about Ukraine, it's not about Baltic states, it's not about Syria, it's about United States. Russia or Putin's regime is after United States. Uh, trying to find a common ground with this regime is not only naivete, it gives Putin, uh, Putin's Russia more time and more opportunities to achieve their goals. We have been doing that for already 15 years. I mean, trying to find some common ground, offering Putin this and that, offering uh, a reset policy, offering uh, membership in all kind of uh, world organizations. Russia don't deserve, deserve to be part of, of, of which. Uh, we took every steps we could, but we are in the situation when even uh, most high-ranking officials of uh, US military says that Russia poses an existential threat to the United States. So maybe it's a time to change our thinking and to change our policy, because it, uh, our, such kind of our actions really provides Putin more time and more opportunities to achieve their goals. And the third one, Putin will never stop. And Putin's regime will never stop. He can only be stopped. And I will uh, finish there and will be happy to answer all your questions. There, uh, first question? Yes. Um, uh, do you have a bodyguard? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And, and there is no threat. No. Um, even, uh, well, this, 
this is a joke, of course, but, but, but the, taking it seriously, uh, they, are, um, they don't care about people like me. They don't care even about people in Russia itself until uh, they pose a real threat to them. Uh, so even, uh, well, the famous case of Nemtsov, it was not about Putin. It was uh, vice versa, it was uh, against Putin. Uh, people who did that, uh, I mean Kadyrov and Tadas, uh, close as associates of Kadyrov, they were uh, trying to uh, convey a message to Putin. That and and uh, the message was like this: if uh, if you will not uh, go after. Uh, people like Nemtsov, who are called the traitors in Russia. There will be forces in Russia who will do it for you. But in that case, you will be not needed anymore. That was the message they, they wanted to convey to Putin himself. And that was the reason why the case was solved so quickly. There are two stories. Uh, one story is about the situation before Ukrainian war, war in Ukraine. And I'm really not happy about that situation because I'm talking about these things for many, many years. Um, well, as I said, uh, it's nothing new to me. It's not, there are not many things new to uh, people in Lithuania, even if they are not uh, looking so deep into, into Putin's regime. But uh, somehow still uh, we were not serious about uh, Putin's regime and the threat it poses to Lithuania. The best example of that was our military budget. It was uh, two years ago when we had a military budget of uh, less than 1% of GDP. Uh, so we, we were not serious about that. Now, uh, not only society, but our politicians as well are awakened. Uh, again, it was about our naivety. We were aware about uh, the aggressiveness of Putin's regime. We were talking about the threats uh, uh, we are facing from Putin's regime. But we thought that we ourselves uh, are somehow secure just because we are members of NATO. So that was the situation of before the war in Ukraine. After the war in Ukraine, we are taking a lot of steps, uh, increasing our military budget, uh, increasing uh, awareness of our uh, people in, in Lithuania about the threats. Um, well, doing many, many things uh, to respond to this threat. So these are two different stories. Uh, related to that question, do you see this as becoming an important issue in Lithuania's election this fall? They'll be electing the new parliament and the new government. I haven't noticed any, any, uh, any political rhetoric among parties about, uh, about security or military security. Oh. 
because it's a consensus in Lithuania. Even these parties who are, well, considered to be pro-Russian, and we have two parties in a governing coalition now who are considered to be pro-Russian. Uh, so even these parties don't dare to uh, somehow fight this general line uh, of uh, threat perception from Russia. They are not publicly speaking against that. So that's why uh, you can't uh, notice any discussion on that. But it will have an effect. It will definitely have an effect, uh, just because it was a situation two years ago when we had um, local elections that these parties who are considered to be pro-Russian, they lost, they heavily lost. And that will be the case uh, in our parliament elections uh, next autumn. So uh, I can anticipate uh, that these two parties which are considered uh, pro-Russian, uh, they will be not in power anymore. Do you see any hope for like, opposition, opposition parties in Russia? I remember when I was living there, that there was very much a clear generational divide between like average Russians, like the teenagers I was teaching English to had access to the internet, and like, we had groups in and only Babushka listens to Consider to be opposition in Russia? Question. Yeah. I mean, like the organizations around those figures. Then I have a problem with that. Uh, if we speak uh, about the opposition in Russia, naming people like uh, Khodorkovsky, mm -hmm. Kasyanov, Nemtsov, and People like that, as an opposition figures, I have a problem. Uh, just because, um, let's start from Khodorkovsky. The company Yukos, uh, and again, it's, it's, well, it's not, I can't say it's documented, but it's, uh, there are a lot of witnesses that the company Yukos was created by KGB. Uh, he was working hand in hand with Putin for many years, uh, and with this regime for many years. Uh, my understanding of what has happened to Khodorkovsky was uh, very similar to what has happened to, let's say, Gusinsky, uh, long before the Khodorkovsky case. And it was inter internal battle between a different uh, groups of the same regime. So they were fighting Putin because Putin was supported by some other camp. But when Putin came to power, of course, he uh, just became a most influential uh, leader in Russia. So, uh, And Khodorkovsky just thought he was so powerful at that time uh, that uh, he is just untouchable. And that was his mistake. Let's, let's take uh, Kasyanov. Uh, I think most of you remember that he was a prime minister uh, under Putin. So, uh, well, when such people who were 
a part of regime who he was called uh, Misha. This is a short uh, name of him. Misha three percent. That at that time meant that he was taking three percent from all the deals uh, uh, which were uh, signed by him. And, so, 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 it's about corruption again. So, so he was uh, uh, he was absolutely corrupt. Uh, head of the government. Uh, he was working with Putin hand in hand. Uh, okay, maybe something changed. But when we're thinking and, and speaking about uh, people in Russia in, and about uh, an oppos real opposition. Uh, the first thing uh, you asked me about is threat to the life. Or they are not threatened uh, by well, real threat of, of, of their lives. Uh, the first thing this regime is doing is taking their businesses. Uh, and uh, well, if you will look to Persiano, you will find not uh, you will not find any business run by him. Now, right now, he is a politician. Right now, but uh, if you look deeper, if you look at the family of his uh, son, uh, this family uh, have their private uh, jet. Uh, they are billionaires. So, if somebody is closely related in family relations. Uh, to a real opposition uh, figure in Russia, they wouldn't be allowed to keep such kind of business. No way. Uh, so uh, w there are a lot of people in, in Russia uh, who don't uh, think in terms uh, what uh, Putin's regime thinks, and, and they don't like Putin. Uh, but uh, well, it's not about these people uh, who are claiming to be an opposition opposition. The other thing which is important to mention answering this question that uh, now we have a very dangerous situation. Uh, it's not only about uh, people in power in Russia, it's about the society. Uh, Putin regime managed to change the society in Russia. Uh, I mentioned this morning that I really know and I believe that Russia can be different but not right now. Uh, right now we have a situation when, uh, let's say, people at the same family, let's say, brother and sister, uh, son and mother, uh, they are split by this Crimea issue. And I'm talking about the democratic families. These people who are from democratic families. I have a, a lot of stories, I know a lot of stories when, uh, let's say, uh, told to me personally when uh, some best friend of some woman said to her, I wish you would, you would be dead because you support uh, these well, traitors of, of Russia. So it's, it's, uh, the tendency is absolutely different. We, uh, when we uh, speak about, let's say, about the Poles in Russia, uh, and we don't believe in these Poles that, uh, let's say, 50, uh, not 50, 85 percent of Russians uh, support Putin. I would say these polls are quite right. Uh, 
But it doesn't mean that 15% of Russians don't support Putin uh, because they are Democrats. We have a situation when these 50%, at least I would say some 5% of them, don't support Putin just because they think he's, um, well, too weak. He's not, yeah, they, they think he's too weak. They think, uh, like uh, these people of uh, Kadyrov and, and others think, they should uh, exterminate uh, the traitors in Russia. So that is this, the real situation in Russia now. So Russia can be different, and society can be different, but not now. We lost at least a generation. Is, um, is this persistent and consistent conflict and aggression um, from Russia and the kind of the perception of the outside world by Russia? Is this a mechanism to keep Russia whole, to keep Russian society, to keep Russian state whole and together? Or why, why do they keep the stance? Um, one part of it, uh, yes, it's, it's true. Uh, one part of it, it's, uh, but it's much more about keeping uh, the regime itself in power. It's not about keeping Russia together. Mm-hmm. And I personally don't believe uh, in this concept and theories that uh, Russia can be split uh, in some 50 new states. Uh, when I was at the university, it was 1992, this concept of uh, Russia will split in, in some 50 states was so popular at that time. Uh, I didn't believe in, in that at that time. I don't believe in this today. Um, I would say, yes, they need this conflict and enemies uh, to be safe in power in, in, in Russia. But it's only a small, small uh, part of the picture. It's not about, uh, when we say that uh, Putin needs these wars in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Syria, just to keep uh, in power, uh, I'm afraid we're wrong. They have a vision, as I said. And this vision is to destroy European Union, NATO, and ultimately United States. Do the uh, three Baltic states feel like they are getting enough of America in terms of defense against Russia? Now, recently the, the budget for the United States has allowed for more rotation of U.S. and NATO forces in the Baltic states, and then Lithuania just did a procurement as well. And typically, that's a balance that's worked out in Brussels by NATO allies. So do the Baltic states want more? What more do they want from the United States of America that should be done against Russia? Well, the easiest answer and the most simple answer would be to be serious about that. I tried to explain uh, this morning uh, the situation uh, and uh, to, to, to make this long story short, I would say, let's look into the uh, recent report of RAND Corporation about these things. We need at least seven brigades in the Baltic states to defend uh, Baltic states from, not, not to defend, they will not defend Baltic states, but to deter Russia from any aggression, we need at least seven brigades. 
Of course, we know uh, that we have our own brigades, but still uh, it's uh, the case when we need at least a brigade in not a battalion, which is discussed now, right now, but a brigade in every single Baltic state to deter Russia from this aggression. So when we're speaking about even this uh, 3 and 4, uh, 3.4 billion uh, which were devoted to this so-called deterrence of Russia, uh, the thing is uh, it could be uh, some kind of uh, well game played by Obama administration because uh, these, most of the money and most of the uh, troops which will be, uh, and most of the equipment which we pre-deployed will be not in Baltic states. They will be in Germany and some other countries. So it's, uh, when we're talking about the real threat perception and the real uh, scenario of aggression against Baltic states, it's, uh, well, it's, it's better than nothing. But uh, when I'm asked some similar question, I'm used to answer in a way, uh, I think it's too little and I hope it's, uh, it will not be too late. Yes, please. What can the US uh, do effectively to uh, deter the mission? Well, um, it, 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 it depends in it depends on what uh, uh, the, well to start with uh, we don't have any strategy towards Russia not against Russia but towards Russia we don't have any strategy any at all so to, just to be serious we should start from having a real strategy what we want to do with this threat. Uh, well, if you want me to go deeper into, into that, so uh, if we are talking not about the Baltic states, because my, my, my mission is, is to talk not about the Baltic states. I, I tried to explain the uh, threat to the Baltic states this morning, but but uh, I'm, I'm when I'm talking to the Western audience, uh, I'm talking just about the threat to the West, not to the Baltic states. So if we're not talking about the Baltic states and we're talking about the threat Putin's regime poses to the West, um, again, if we need, if we want to work out a strategy. A lot of research should be done, uh, a lot of thinking should be employed, and, and, uh, but I can just, as an exprompt, I, I, I can uh, offer three, at least three uh, things we can do and we don't want to do. So first thing is to wage a war against Russia in Ukraine. I'm not uh, talking about sending troops. It's not, there is no necessity to send uh, troops, uh, our troops, in, uh, to Ukraine. And I am fully aware that our societies are not ready to send our troops to Ukraine. But if we are serious about the threat uh, Putin regime poses to the West, we should fight this regime. And Ukraine is uh, the best theater to, find this, uh, to fight uh, Putin. 
So why not to uh, support Ukrainian willingness to fight against Putin regime? Because these people, they really want to fight against Putin regime. So this is the first one. The second one, okay, uh, we don't uh, want to fight uh, Putin in Ukraine. Let's uh, be serious about sanctions. Let's be serious about the Russian economy. It's the way to uh, destroy this regime. But we are talking about abolishing these sanctions. Uh, we are not talking about uh, making these sanctions really serious. Because uh, when we compare uh, sanctions which were imposed uh, against Iran, they are incompatible to sanctions which were imposed uh, to Russia. So there is uh, quite a big room we could move further, but we are moving backwards. Uh, the third one, if we are not, if we don't want to wage a war against Russia and Ukraine, if we don't want to be serious uh, about sanctions, uh, we can try to make uh, a Ukraine in uh, Ukraine a uh, normal European country. Uh, let's think about new Marshall Plan to Ukraine. Let's think about uh, some kind of uh, governing uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this country is almost bankrupt. Uh, this country is uh, they are facing Russian aggression. So it's a time for us to take an initiative, and that would be the less cost, uh, costly way to solve many, many problems, not only in uh, Russia, but uh, let's say in Europe. If we will make, uh, well, just talking from the strategic point of view, if we will make Ukraine a normal European country, it will pay off with trade, with uh, all the other things, and these billions we should invest now into making uh, Ukraine a normal European country would pay off in, in, in 10 or 20 years. So, but the, at the same time, we would uh, achieve a goal of uh, at least undermine, un undermining the regime of Putin. Because uh, Putin himself says, uh, and most of the Russians believe, that uh, Russia and Ukraine is the same nation. Uh, well, we, 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 can, we can smile, we can laugh at it, but, but this is the way they think uh, about Ukraine. And if uh, a country which they consider to be the same nation, it's not about Baltic countries, which were considered, even du during the uh, Soviet times, they were considered some kind of abroad. We were called abroad by Russia. And we, we're talking about the country which they consider to be the same nation. And if they will succeed to be a normal European country with a normal economy, with a functioning democracy, with all the other things which our liberal democracy can uh, provide, it will be the existential threat to Putin's regime. Because most of the people in Russia will see that there is the other way. Now, they don't see any other way. 
So that would be the first scenario. So these are just a kind of experiment. We, we certainly have time for a couple more questions. Um, go, sure, I, I, I didn't see you raise your hand. Okay. Um, uh, this evening you mentioned that um, Russia really has designs on a vision of bringing the EU to a place or destroying it, really. This morning you mentioned also that Russia is way more dependent on the EU, so I think it was the energy, than the EU is on Russia. Is that something that maybe help slow down the process a bit? And, and no, I don't think so. I don't think so, because they don't need uh, European Union to sell their gas and oil to Germany, Baltic states, and all the others. They don't need European Union. If the European Union as a structure, as a union, will, gone, will be gone, they will lose nothing. Mm -hmm. so, it, so it still benefits them? There are ways that they can mitigate that loss of having a stronger EU-wide. That's still a condition that they're willing to pursue. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think we can continue with some informal chatting now. I'd like to uh, thank you all for coming, and, and I'd particularly like to thank Marius Lauren for coming and leading us with some uh, deep thoughts and interesting discussion. Thank you.